and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Hello, I'm Pat Malone, and I'd like to welcome you to The Church in the Home, where we share the light of God's Word from our home to yours. I know the truth of God's Word, and I believe what I heard, yeah, yeah. I believe what I heard. I believe what I heard, so I'm standing on the Word of God. People want to know. People want to know a lot of things about a lot of different areas of life. From the very personal areas of their life, and that being from such practical matters as who do I marry? Where do I work? Where do I live? To the more abstract philosophical ideas like, why am I here and what's the meaning of life? People want to know not just things about their own lives, but the world around them. They want to understand the world. They want to understand the natural world as well as the social world. In schools, the study of the world around us is known as science. In fact, science is defined as the pursuit and application of knowledge and understanding of the natural and social world following a systematic methodology based on evidence. That's a mouthful, huh? <laughs> Stated in simple terms, science is the study of the world that we live in, done in a manner of a systematic method that's based on actual evidence. That's what science is. That pursuit of knowledge, man's desire to know, that pursuit of knowledge is a good thing. How he pursues it at times may not be. Take your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the record of the fall of man. The record of the fall of man. And the background to this is God had made Adam and Eve and he put them in the garden and he told them, of every tree in the garden they may freely eat, but of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat it, for then the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely, what? Die. Die. One thing, one thing. In verse 1 of chapter 3 of Genesis, now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, 
then your eyes shall be what? Open. And ye shall be as what? God's knowing good and evil. Now, there's a lot in that record. It's a record that <clears throat> is in the foundational class, gone into in great detail, showing exactly how people got tricked, how Eve got tricked, and what happened after that. But what I want to focus on this morning is looking at what that temptation first was. The serpent says unto the woman, God knows that in the day that you eat of that tree, you'll be just as smart as God. You'll be as God's yourself, knowing good and evil. You won't need God anymore. You'll know it all yourself. You won't need God to tell you anything. You don't have to listen to God. Why, God doesn't want you to do this, because then you'll be right up there with him. Did the serpent know that that was a lie? Yeah, he tried that one himself, didn't he? <laughs> he tried himself to be right up and there with God and overthrow God. And it didn't work out for him, but now he's trying to do it with them. Verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one what? Wise. Wise. She took of the tree of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave unto her husband, and he did eat. And the eyes of them were both opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. So there's that, the, the first great sin. It's the first sin and the one that, that brings condemnation upon all mankind. It's that sin that amounted to high treason. The way that the serpent, the adversary, the devil, became the god of this world. But the thing that they fell for, the thing that they went for, was that they would be just like God, knowing good and evil. Did they want knowledge? Yes. Did they need to go that route? No. Was it a wise choice? No. no. You know, the way that man gets in trouble in his pursuit of knowledge is that he looks in the wrong places so often. He looks in the wrong places and doesn't look in the right ones. And secondly, he's so prone to just jump to conclusions. When it comes to science, that pursuit of knowledge of the world around us, when it's limited, when it's wrong, the reason why is for those two reasons. That man will ignore the greatest source of knowledge and he will often jump to the wrong conclusion. You can see that illustrated in, in probably every field of science. I don't know enough about science to say that. I do know enough of the history of medical science to be able to say that there's a great example, right? Medical science is wonderful. I'm so thankful for how much it has done for mankind. But do you know that from the time of antiquity to the middle of the 19th century, the most common practice in surgery was bloodletting? 
That's over 2,000 years. For over 2,000 years, if you were feeling horrible, the thing they would do is drain the blood out of you. Now, that's, you see that in movies, you, you know, and to us, with this hindsight, it's just, what, what, what crazy things they were doing, how silly. Why would anybody think that that would work? But you know what? There was a whole science behind it. The science is called humorism, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that Mark Twain was doing this. You know, humorism, there's nothing all that funny about it, uh, especially if you're the guy that's having this done to you. But that's what it's called because the science behind this was they believed that disease was a result of an imbalance of blood and fluids in your body. And they had four different types of blood. You can read about all the detail of this. But in order to get the right balance, why, we must need to just let some of it out. And we can either do that by, you know, actually just draining it from you or leeches. And that's what they would do. So was that a right idea? No. Obviously not. And yet, they believed, according to their best knowledge, that it was. But you know what? Had anyone looked at what the Bible says, they would have realized this is not what you want to do, because it tells us right in Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. blood. The life of the flesh is in the blood. To drain out the blood is to drain out the life. That's pretty simple. That's pretty axiomatic. People want to know, and seldom do they know as much as they think they know. There's the sad reality. God tells man that. He kind of makes man recognize it in the book of Job, and you can turn there. Job 38. You know, the book of Job, if you're not familiar with it, a lot of the book is devoted to Job and his so-called friends, the miserable comforters that they were, trying to figure out what happened to Job. Job wanted to know. Because Job had a lot of bad things happen to him, all in a day. He lost his family. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his servants. He lost his health. Everything happened to Job. And like any of us, Job wanted to understand, why did this happen? Isn't that the question people always ask when anything goes wrong? Why did this happen to me? Why did this happen to me? We want to know. Job wanted to know. And his friends, they were only too helpful. They were only too glad to tell him why this happened. They'd tell him, you did this wrong, and you did that wrong, you know? His friends to me seem like, you know, the first Facebook friends that were ever around, although Facebook wasn't. You know, it's like you get that kind of advice on Facebook, you know, oh, this happened. Oh, well, it must be this. It must be that. You should do this. You should do that. And there was Job listening to these guys for the longest time, and Job himself trying to come up with some stuff. And finally, finally, God says, you know what? Let me tell you something. We'll look at it, and we'll just look at some selected verses. Go to verse 1 of Job 38. 
Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? Who is it that's giving counsel with words that don't have any real knowledge behind them? Gird up now thy loins like a man, for I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. Okay, you guys think you know so much, then I got some questions for you. You, you tell me. Verse 4, where was thou when I laid the foundation of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. When I was putting everything in place, when I created the heavens and the earth, when I put it all back together after the adversary messed it all up, where were you? Where were you? Verse 12. Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know his place? Are you the ones that have done these things that caused the sun to rise in the morning that has set these things in order? Verse 17. Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Are you able to raise the dead? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Look at verse 21. Knowest thou it because thou was then born? <laughs> Were you around at the time that I did all these things? Were you? You know? Because even today, it sure seems like some people talk as though they were. <laughs> they talk like they had first-hand knowledge, like they were right there, that they know exactly when it was and how it happened, like they were right there at the time. God says, were you around then, really? Or because the numbers of thy day is great, that you're that old? <laughs> Hast thou entered into the treasures of the snow, or hast thou seen the treasures of the hail, which I have reserved against the time of trouble, against the day of battle and war? By what way is the light parted, which scattereth the east wind upon the earth? How does that happen? How does, that, how does all of that occur? Who hath divided a water course for the overflowing of waters, or a way for the lightning of thunder? to cause it to rain on the earth where no man is, on the wilderness wherein there is no man, to satisfy the desolate and waste ground, and to cause the bud of the tender herb to spring forth. Hath the rain a father? Or who hath begotten the drops of dew? Can you guys pull that one off? You know? Can you make it so that it rains? Can you make it so that all these things are controlled? Because God can. And yet man, with all of his arrogance and pride and conceit, talks as though, why, we just did it ourselves somehow. The universe did it itself. Look at verse 34. Canst thou lift up thy voice to the clouds that, ab that abundance of water may cover thee? Can you have a little rain dance, sing a song, do whatever, so that it brings down, you know, Elmer Gantry, the rainmaker? Boy, there, there's one that maybe two or three people out there know. <laughs> Verse 36. Who hath put wisdom in the inward parts? Or who hath given understanding to the heart? Verse 41. 
Who provideth for the raven his food when his young ones cry unto God that wander for lack of meat? Man thinks that he knows so much more than what he knows. And it's not a bad thing to want to know, but it's a bad thing to not recognize that the author of life knows more. It's a bad thing to fall into the same trick, the same trap, that the adversary pulled on Eve and, and Adam subsequently. It's a mistake to fall into the same trap that Lucifer himself did of being lifted up with pride against God. And that's what all of this stuff amounts to when people think that they know more than God. It's man in his unbridled pride. It's man in all of his arrogance thinking that he knows more than he knows. Look at Job 39, verse 19. Hast thou given the horse strength? Hast thou clothed his neck with thunder? Canst thou make him afraid as a grasshopper? The glory of his nostrils is terrible. Verse 26. Doth the hawk fly by thy wisdom, or stretch her wings toward the south? Doth the eagle mount up at thy command and make her nest on high? Do you do all of those things? Can you do all of those things? Look at chapter 40, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord God answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. You know, there's a lot of times that man, and you know, at some point in our life, I dare say it was true of all of us, that we have t at times thought we knew better than God. Well, I know you say this, God, but you don't understand this situation. Or, you know, I don't understand why you would say that, God. You know, there's, I can't see the harm in doing this. There's a lot of things that fell into that category for me for when I first came to know God. But boy, we don't know more than him. We we cannot instruct him, and the idea of man reproving God is ludicrous, and yet people will. Why, it says that in the Bible? Why, that's just wrong. Oh. Man reproving God. How, how crazy. How crazy. Look at Jeremiah chapter 2. You know, you can go on and read more in Job and see all the different ways that God makes this point. And it goes on. And I'm, like I said, I just hit enough of the highlights to kind of drive the point. But man does get in trouble when he does discount the greatest source of knowledge, God and his word. And God has given us his word so that we could know. God didn't just make man and put him down here and say, well, son, kick around for 60, 70 years, and I'll see you when it's all over. Good luck. <laughs> but that's how so many people live their lives. So many people don't realize that God's word is the rule book for life. It is the guidebook. It is the owner's manual of life. My goodness, I, I won't, you know, 
start my vacuum cleaner without looking at the owner's manual. Now I know that I know I'm unique in that way. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, that habit has stood me in good stead. The Word of God, you can afford to try to figure out your car, your vacuum cleaner, or whatever other gadget you're struggling with. But do you really want to do that with life? Do you really want to do that with life? Do you really want to risk what will break? <laughs> because God's Word gives us answers. It gives us answers to those very personal matters, those very important practical matters in our life. And it gives us answers to the great questions of life and the world around us. In Jeremiah 2, verse 13, there, here's a verse that will go, be gone into in great detail and in the foundational class. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Two evils. One, they forsook God, who was the fountain of living waters, the one who has all of the answers. And two, they went about trying to make their own cisterns, their own broken cisterns that could hold no water, their own systems, their own ideas, their own ways of living, their own inventions, and I don't mean that in the sense of vacuum cleaners, but I mean their own ways of doing things that were contrary to God's word. They've looked in the wrong places. Whenever man forsakes God and the knowledge of his word, he has gravely erred. And when he chooses to elevate that senses knowledge above the revealed knowledge of God's word, he is on real shaky ground. He has built his house, not only on sand, but on a fault line of, a, of the earth, and boy, sooner or later, he's going to get all shook up in a big way. Now let me ask you something. Does that mean, then, that science, all senses learning, is wrong? That it all has to be in opposition to the Word of God? Well, there's many that take that position. Many on the academic side that would claim that anybody in the pursuit of science that would consider that the Word of God might know something, why, they're just crazy. In fact, there are some that would have you believe that no man of science, no person of any real intellect, could possibly believe in God. And boy, there's an attitude, a philosophy, that's really on the rise. One that has been for some time, and some time, you know, some time to some extent goes back to the fall. But certainly in modern times, that has been so shoved down the throats of students mm -hmm. in our schools, in our universities. It's become so much a matter of Anybody that would think that God and the supernatural has any merit whatsoever must be an absolute moron. But it wasn't always the case, nor is it in reality the case today, that all people 
that are great intellects, that travel in those academic circles, that are men and women of science, are also unbelievers. How many of you ever heard of Sir Isaac Newton? Yes. What do you know of him? Somebody. Science, right? Had an apple fall on his head, right? He was a studier of God's word. He was. How many of you knew that? Yeah. <laughs> Did you learn that in school when they taught you about Isaac Newton? Was that what they taught you about him? No, I, I dare say it wasn't. <laughs> A few people do know that, but that's certainly not what he's most famous for. And yet, let me read you something. He has been called the greatest scientific genius the world has known. This is about Isaac Newton. It's from an article, The Faith Behind the Famous in Christianity Today. Yet he spent less time on science than on theology. Even in Newton's lifetime, his contemporaries, adulation, verged on worship. Following his death in April 1727, Newton lay in state in Westminster Abbey for a week. At the funeral, his pall was borne by three earls, two dukes, and the Lord Chancellor, <clears throat> Lord Chancellor Voltaire observed, he was buried like a king who had done well by his subjects. No scientist before or since has been so revered and interred with such high honor. Who was this man whose stature had dominated the scientific landscape for three centuries? Why did his achievement have such an impact on society? What role did Newton's faith play in his life and work? For Newton, the world of science was by no means the whole of life. He spent more time on theology than on science. Indeed, he wrote about 1.3 million words on biblical subjects. Wow. Yet this vast legacy lay hidden from public view for two centuries until the auction of his non-scientific writings in 1936. Newton's understanding of God came primarily from the Bible, which he studied for days and weeks at a time. He took special interest in miracles and prophecy, calculating dates of Old Testament books, and analyzing their texts to discover their authorship. In a manuscript on rules for interpreting prophecy, Newton noted the similar goals of the, science, of the scientist and the prophecy expositor, simplicity and unity. He condemned the folly of interpreters who foretell times and things by prophecy, since the purpose of prophecy was to demonstrate God's providence in history when after prophecies were fulfilled, they might be interpreted by events. A member of the Anglican Church, Newton attended services and participated in special projects such as paying for the distribution of Bibles among the poor and serving on a commission to build 50 new churches in the London area. Yet Newton seldom made public announcements regarding his theology. He is remembered instead for his pioneering scientific achievements. And the article goes on. People don't know. People don't know. But Newton was a man of faith, not just a man of reason, quote unquote. You know, that's how the academics will frame that debate. Science or, or reason versus faith. 
as though the two are necessarily intrinsically at loggerheads, loggerheads. But that was not the case for Newton, nor many others. Michael Faraday, who is famous for his, his work in, in electromagnetics and chemistry, uh, chemical, chemistry, he was also a great man of faith, a man who also studied the scriptures. There are many, many more. You can look this up for yourself sometime. Um, you know, look, there's a, a wiki page, or Wikipedia page, rather, that lists all the different men, Christian men of science as well as faith. And it just goes on for pages, pages after pages. They aren't necessarily at loggerheads, and we'll see the benefit when the two are worked together. Talking about those that were great scientists and also great men of God, the halls of science are just filled with the names of so many of these men. Men like Galileo, Francis Bacon, Joseph Priestley, Gregor Mendel, Louis Pasteur, and many, many more. According to 100 years of Nobel Prizes, a review of Nobel Prizes between 1901 and 2000, 65% of Nobel Prize laureates have identified, as Christian, have identified Christianity in its various forms in their religious preferences. 72% of Nobel Prizes in chemistry, 65% in physics, 62% in medicine, and so forth, were Christians or had the background of it. So there are those, and in fact, they're not even in the minority. They're not even the minority of men in scientific fields who did believe in God or do believe in God because it's not just guys from a long time ago. Again, if you look at it, it's page after page of people today. And yet there are also, very vocally, those who are scientists that not only don't believe in God, but have rejected him and feel that anyone that does believe in God just has to be inferior mentally. The true scientist, if we define that in terms of the man who is limited to that knowledge only which he can attain through his five senses will always find himself in the position of not believing because in order to truly have faith, it requires just that, faith, faith. It requires faith, and faith is not, when it's true faith, is not based on the senses. And by the way, when I'm using the word faith in the context of this teaching, I'm using it in the very broad sense of belief, men of belief, belief in the true God, belief in the Bible. You can get into a lot. We could go into a couple hours of just talking about that word and all the different things it means to different people. But I'm just using it in the very broad sense. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If a person does ignore the source of all life, 
if he ignores the revealed word of God and that which is available through the Spirit of God, well, then certainly he cannot receive the great things of God. God tells us that right in his word. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, in verse 14, it says, But the natural man, the natural man, you know, the natural man, that, that doesn't mean like, I don't know, you know, it doesn't mean like the Marlboro Cowboy or something like that. <laughs> The natural man, meaning the man who's limited to the, the natural realm, the five senses learning. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are what? Foolishness, Foolishness unto them. So don't be surprised when somebody that is a natural man and who has chosen to limit himself to only that source for knowledge thinks that you're foolish for believing in God. Neither can he know them because they are what? Those are two different realms. There's the natural realm and there is the spiritual realm. The things of the natural realm are known, can be known by simply the five senses. Now, it doesn't mean that they can't be known by spiritual knowledge as well. But the things of the spiritual realm, on the other hand, those can only be known by the Spirit. They cannot be known by the five senses. I could go into more detail of that. There's greater understanding you could get into with that. But in terms of understanding those two fields of knowledge, the natural and the spiritual, the things of the spiritual are spiritually discerned, it says. Verse 15. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? Takes us back to Job, doesn't it? Who's known the mind of the Lord that he can instruct God? But we have the mind of Christ. Those that are born again of God's Spirit have the mind of Christ. They have the mind of Christ. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The natural man, he can't know the great things of God. He can know by his five senses. Great understanding of the natural world. And certainly there have been scientists in every field that have made great discoveries about that world around us, that have come to great understanding of it. But they're still missing out on what they could know. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3, it says, But if our gospel be hid, it is, him, it is hid to them that are lost or perishing. In whom? The God of this world. Who's that? Yeah, the same fellow that tried to convince, that did convince man in the first place that he could be just as smart as God without God. He hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. The adversary has blinded the eyes of them which believe not. He's blinded them. They're blind to what is out there. They only see so much. They can only see that which is in the natural world. But boy, how much they do miss. Look at 
verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 2. There are such great treasures, such great treasures of knowledge that are available to those that don't limit themselves to just the five senses. To those that don't ignore the author of life. In verse 9 it says, But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of man, save the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Eye hath not seen, ear hath not heard the things that God hath revealed. God hath revealed so much to man to know and continues to do that. And even when it comes to the natural realm, the natural world, those that don't limit themselves, that don't discount the greatest source of knowledge and instead turn to him, open up an avenue for even greater discoveries and have demonstrated some of the greatest discoveries of, of all time. One such man, one man of science and faith that some of you are probably wondering when I was going to get to him because they know how highly I regard him, was George Washington Carver. All right, this time I'm going to limit the audience to answer. Those of you that have not heard me talk about him before, what do you know about George Washington Carver? What? He made peanuts popular. Okay. How many? How many have only have have heard somewhere that he invented peanut butter? Never heard that. That's a very common thing. And the, the reality is he didn't actually did not invent that. That was uh, the the patent is held by the breakfast cereal guy Kellogg. He did come up with hundreds of uses of the peanut. Why? Why? What a, what a crazy thing. Why? Well, George Washington Carver was an incredible scientist and man of faith. And he is credited with saving the entire economy of the South back in the 1930s. I'm going to read some excerpts to you. I've got a few books. I've got actually more on George Washington Carver and what he did and how he did it. And that's what's most important. It all goes back to a little bug. Not the kind that we're dealing with now. The boll weevil, did you ever hear of the boll weevil? Yes. Is a dark, rapacious little creature less than a quarter of an inch long. It feeds on the cotton plant, then infests it with millions of microscopic eggs. Around 1892, it slipped into Texas from Mexico, and in the next 25 years laid waste field after great cotton field across all the old Confederacy. Its annual toll soon exceeded $100 million back then. 
No one can say how many lives it blighted. To the luckless regions of farmers in its ravaging eastward path through Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama, the weevil brought ruin and end to every hope. In 1915, not one coffee county, that's a county, not what you drink, farmer in 10 could pay his tax bill. In other words, 90% of people could not pay, of farmers could not pay their tax bill because they were just so broke from their cough being wiped out. In Enterprise, the county seat was a ghostly presence in the midst of the endless reaches of mutilated cotton, its stores shuttered in bankruptcy, its people destitute and lost. Burn off your infested cotton, Carver had beseeched the desolated farmers wherever he went. He was the professor of agriculture at Tuskegee, I probably, Tuskegee? Okay. Tuskegee uh, Institute? Yes. So it was a college. And he was the professor of agriculture, and he traveled to, just you know, started to do this, traveled throughout the whole region in giving free advice to farmers. And so this is the advice he's giving them in light of this, you know, huge situation going on with the boll weevil. Burn your cotton. Plant peanuts. But no one listened. Plant peanuts, snorted a grizzled old sharecropper in response to Carver's pleas. What for? Cotton's important. It makes clothes. Everybody needs clothes. But peanuts? Why, man, give me 120 acres and I'll grow enough peanuts to do the whole state of Alabama. Who needs peanuts? You, know, you work for peanuts, right? That's not only you know. Kids snacked on peanuts back then, and they saw no reason to have it. But Carver knew that peanuts would put back into the soil. That not only would the boll weevil not be able to attack it, but it would put back into the soil what decades of planting just cotton had depleted from it. And so that's why he was trying to convince them, for the sake of the soil, to plant peanuts. But they had a good point. What are we going to do with all these peanuts? George Washington Carver went to the source of all life to get the answer. Years ago, this is Carver talking to somebody, I went into my laboratory and said, Dear Mr. Creator, please tell me what the universe was made for. The great creator answered, you want to know too much for that little mind of yours. Ask for something more your size. Then I asked, dear Mr. Creator, tell me what man was made for. Again, the great creator replied, little man, you still are asking too much. Cut down the extent of your request and improve the intent. So then I asked, please, Mr. Creator, will you tell me why the peanut was made? That's better, but even then, it's infinite. What do you want to know about the peanut? Mr. Creator, can I make milk out of the peanut? What kind of milk do you want? Good Jersey milk or just plain boarding house milk? 
Good Jersey milk. And then the great creator taught me how to take the peanut apart and put it together again. And out of this process have come forth all these products. For over an hour, Dr. Carver drew forth from his homemade box of samples a continuing procession of face powder, printer's ink, butter, shampoo, creosote, vinegar, dandruff, cure, instant coffee, dyes, rubberoid compounds, soaps, salads, wood stains. Now, a lot of you probably didn't know that all those things came from peanuts. A lot of you know that we get all kinds of crazy things from soybeans, right? Carver knew that you could do that with soybeans. The only reason why he didn't, try, didn't do it with soybeans was because nobody had heard of soybeans back then. He had a hard enough time convincing them to plant peanuts that they had at least heard of. All of that original research was later changed to soybean. Some more. In 1921, he, Carver, was invited to Washington, D.C. to speak to the House Ways and Means Committee as an expert on the peanut. They had planned to give him just 10 minutes, but his presentation was so fascinating that the chairman said, go ahead, brother, your time is unlimited. <laughs> he showed them milk extracted from peanuts that looked just like cow's milk. He showed them buttermilk, cheese, and ice cream. He showed them breakfast food coffee substitutes, meat substitutes, cosmetics, and ink, all made from the peanut. Today, much of Carver's research has been applied in making the same products from soybeans, as fewer people are allergic to soybeans than to peanuts. George ended up speaking for one hour and 45 minutes, not 10, to his captivated audience. At the end of his address, the committee chairman, this is the committee chairman in Congress, the Congress of the United States, asked, Dr. Carver, where did you learn all these things? George Carver, Carver answered, from an old book. What book, asked the chairman. Carver replied, the Bible. <laughs> the chairman asked, does the Bible tell about peanuts? <laughs> no, sir, Dr. Carver replied. But it tells about the God who made the peanut. I asked him to show me what to do with the peanut, and he did. <laughs> what great wisdom, huh? What a great genius. What a great genius. You know, and he ran into trouble whenever he told people that the way he learned all these great things was from God. It was an era of exciting inventions. Edison invented the light bulb in 1910. In 1913, Henry Ford perfected the assembly line, making automotives available to the common man. These great inventions were attracted by George's prolific these great inventors were attracted by George's prolific creati creativity, and both, both Henry Ford and Edison, offered him high-paying jobs. But Carver turned them down, choosing to remain in the service of his people. In everything he did, George merged the worlds of science and religion. Locking the door to his laboratory, Dr. Carver confided, 
Only alone can I draw close enough to God to discover his secrets. On November 19, 1924, Carver spoke at New York City's Marble Collegiate Church, where he attributed his success as a scientist to divine revelation. God is going to, this is Carver, God is going to reveal his thing to us things he never revealed before if we just put our hands in his. No books ever go into my laboratory. The things I am to do and the way of doing it are revealed to me. I never have to grope for methods. The method is revealed to me the moment I am inspired to create something new. Without God to draw aside the curtain, I would be helpless. This was an unpopular notion at the time. Still is. And George was scorned by scientists who were turning from the Bible and in embracing the theory of evolution. Two days after his speech, the New York Times read an editorial titled, Men of Science Never Talk That Way in which they attempted to discredit Carver, his race in the Tuskegee Institute, saying that he revealed a complete lack of the scientific spirit. In his rebuttal, Dr. Carver wrote, I understand that there are scientists to whom the world is merely the result of chemical forces or material electrons. I do not belong to this class. <laughs> he was not limited to that. Yeah, he had studied, you know. I'm not going to come up with 100 uses of the peanut or anything else. He had a background. But boy, when it came down to the great discoveries, he looked to God, and God worked within him, and God revealed to him things through his spirit. The supernatural is just that. It is super. It is above. It is greater than the natural. And it allows man to go to a higher level of understanding, a higher level of knowledge, and a tap in to a greater source of power than just what he knows. Carver demonstrated that, and it's available for all of us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I'd also make note or point to you the Carver in, in endeavoring to deal with the great problem that they faced in the South, the problem of the boll weevil and what had happened throughout the South. He did not just go to God in prayer. He didn't go to God and pray and say, God, make the boll weevil go away. God, prosper everybody. He went to God and asked God to show him what he can do to change it. We have this gift of Holy Spirit, this power, this power. And God has given it to us so that he could talk to us, so that he could direct our ways. The Bible is revelation. But the Bible covers the general. It tells us the promise of God. But so often in life situations, we need that spirit of God to pick up where the written word ends, to direct our steps. 
We know that God's willing to meet our every need. George Washington Carver knew that. But then he went to God to ask God for the specifics of what to do in that situation, the knowledge and the word of wisdom of how to handle that so that he could be and that they could be more than conquerors in every situation. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 talks about this great power. And it says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of what? Us. The earthen vessel is this, this natural body. This natural body, this five senses limited body. And we have this great treasure in this earthen vessel. So that the excellency of the power is of God, not of man. That man can't strut himself around saying, I'm the great one. I'm as wise as God. Man is just this little earthen vessel, no matter how beautiful it looks, no matter how smart it may be. It's still an earthen vessel. It still is all going to corrupt, isn't it? Yep, yeah. But boy, that gift within, there's the treasure. There is the treasure. What's the secret to tapping into that, to living that kind of power? What's the key to power? Well, fellowship is the secret. And what's the key to power? The renewed, renewed mind. mind. Look at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. It always comes back to these basics. It always comes back to the basics. You know, as wonderful as George Washington Carver was, as greatly as I, I admire him, and as much as he turned to the pages of God's Word, most of you sitting in this room know more of the accuracy of God's Word than George Washington Carver ever did. That's a reality. That's a fact. That's a truth. It's not some magic thing. It's not some mystical, how can we possibly do this? The answers of tapping into that are right in the book itself. Verse 3 of chapter 1 of 1 John. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you. These things write we. Where did they write it? In the pages of the book. So that we could have fellowship ultimately with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. It's that fellowship with God. With just as much as he did know, George Washington Carver had this incredible walk with God. He'd get up at 4 o'clock every morning and go for a walk in the field. And... The one book I read from is called The Man Who Talks, Who Talks With Flowers, written by Glenn Clark, who some of you are familiar with. <clears throat> and he, he just believed for God to just show him on those walks what he was going to learn that day. He had this incredible walk with God, this sweetness of fellowship that he cultivated. It, it doesn't necessarily take, you'll be happy to know, getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get that. 
But it does take having that personal relationship with God, that one-on-one -on -one intimate walk with God, time spent with Him, time spent in His Word, time spent just knowing the heart of the Father. And it takes not only that knowing, but then the renewing of our minds to it. As it says in Romans chapter 12, in verse 1, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. You want to talk about reason? It comes from the word, Greek word, logizomai, logic we get from that, right? You want, to, you want to be logical? Renew your mind, because, boy, it's the only logical thing to do. It's the only logical thing to do, especially when you consider all that God has done for us. And it goes on to say in verse 2, And be not conformed to this world, not to be shaped by it, not to be limited by it, not to be limited to just what we can know through the things of the world, not to be limited just by what we can learn on our own five senses but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Has we put on the word of God in our minds? As we go to this source and recognize that the one who gave us this book is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he is the one that knows and understands all things, and that through him and by him, all things consist, when we go to him, then we have an unlimited resource for learning. Whether it's our own lives or all the world around us. God bless you. You can't bring me down, the word is on my mind.